I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astell. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 66, we read The Road to Somewhere by David Goodhart, published in 2017. David Goodhart is a British journalist, commentator, and author. He attended Eton College at the University of York. Goodhart was a correspondent for the Financial Times for 12 years before founding Prospect Magazine in 1995. He served as editor of Prospect until 2010. He is currently head of the Demography, Immigration, and Integration Unit at the Think Tank Policy Exchange. And uh, joining us this week to talk about the road to somewhere is uh, Avi Wolf, friend of the show and uh, writer and, and various other things. Uh, would you like to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Welcome. Hey there. Uh, well, first of all, obviously, I'm well known for my Twitter persona, Avi Wolf, W-O-O-L-F. Uh, but in addition to that, I have uh, published columns in uh, Commentary, National Review, uh, and Arc Digital, uh, covering a wide range of topics, mostly, although obviously not exclusively, uh, covering issues of concern to conservative ideas. All right. Well, we're glad to have you. And this book was your recommendation. So uh, maybe just uh, tell us what, what drew you to it. Uh, I know Corey and I both really enjoyed it. So uh, how did this get on your radar and what, and what do you... Uh, why do you think it's important? Okay. Um, so after the uh, Trump election and Brexit and the wave of populism that basically swept over almost the entire world, I found myself as a stand, as a traditionally standard issue Buckleyite middle-class conservative thinking. There's obviously a very powerful sentiment here among a very large part of the voting population. Um, that it's hard to explain, it's hard to define, and very easy to caricature, uh, both on the right and on the left, because it's people fear what they don't understand as the quote went and the Batman begins. So I started casting around for art, uh, books and studies on the concept of populism. Uh, and I don't remember exactly how I found it, but I found this book by David Goodhart, who himself is a centrist liberal, who nevertheless started to come around to the idea that politics in his native Britain were absolutely dominated by one specific and effectively also minority class with a lot more money and a lot more clout than everybody else. And that the majority of voters who had less clout and less uh, resources were not, uh, were not being listened to. Um, and Brexit seemed to him, as well as the election of Trump and other phenomena seemed to confirm it. Um, and so I read this book and I felt that he came away with a very understandable, explainable, and not caricature explanation of that perspective of, of, uh, of people who voted for these sorts of things. Uh, he explained it in the sense of, it's not a question of the standard issue question of uh, political ideology or of cultural view, or specifically of cultural views we would think of, 
or of income level or of class as we understand it. It has a lot more to do, he said, with what does your world revolve around? Where, what are your communities? Where, uh, where, where's your orientation? And he said that there's a very powerful uh, class that he calls the anywheres, roughly speaking. People who have often left their home and gone to college, people whose community could theoretically be the whole world, uh, people who they communicate uh, professionally, and who are far more comfortable with diversity and far less, although he, though he correctly says that most any, even most anywheres uh, aren't anti-national identity or aren't anti-country, but their affiliation, their attachment is much looser. They live in multiple worlds. Uh, if one particular location uh, where they lived happened to collapse, they could move and live in another location. And then there are what he called, again, this is an ideal type, but roughly speaking, the somewheres. The somewheres are people who they're not, with, with the exception of a small minority, and he bases himself, himself on uh, the British Social Value Survey, which has been running from, for decades. These, aren't pe- these are largely people who have more or less accepted, with some reservations, most of the social liberalization of the 60s that we know happened in the States, but also happened throughout the world, but who still very much hold fast to certain ideas of community, of nation, of pitching in. Um, Their jobs tend to be much more physical and much more around a place. So if in anywhere's uh, place place of employment collapse, they could simply take their degree and go elsewhere. For the somewhere, it's much harder because their community, their system of support is very much their neighbors, their nearby family. And so for them, it would be a disaster. Um, so the result is, is that there's a fundamental clash going on uh, between these two groups. Uh, perhaps the most, as I said, the most stark uh, difference between the two being a college education, something that's also pointed to uh, by another uh, British scholar who I follow and who I ran, uh, found. His name is Matthew Goodwin. I believe his book is called National Populism, and he points to very much the same thing. So I thought that that book is very good and very educational and very important, including for conservatives who are very used to, as I said, either an aristocratic or elite kind of conservatism or a middle-class professional kind of conservatism, both entirely legitimate perspectives, but ones which nevertheless do not understand uh, exclude or don't really uh, include the perspective of an important part of the coalition of the right, uh, even before Trump and even before populism really grew toxic. Hmm. So that's that's why I think that this book is very much important. That's something that everyone needs to read. I found this dichotomy that he sets up anywhere versus somewhere incredibly enlightening. And of course, they are archetypes, as you said. So it's not, you know, it's not exactly, but but I mean, I think it really has, it does shed some light on, on where we're at right now, you know, just to dig a little bit deeper for, for anywhere, for anywhere folks, this is the idea that they are, they see themselves as citizens of the world. So they don't have to be from a place where the somewheres they're from, a this place, this people, this family, this community versus anywheres, they leave home to go to a residential college. And from there, they they take off into some sort of profession, probably, you know, go to law school or business school or something like that. And these are the folks who 
He says, work and life are about self-realization. They're very comfortable with meritocracy, mostly because they've won in the, in the game mm-hmm. of, of meritocracy. You know, this is a worldview for successful individuals who also care about society, places a high value on autonomy, mobility, and novelty, and much lower value on group identity, tradition, and national contracts. And he uses the example of faith flag and family, where the somewheres in, in contrast, more socially conservative, probably didn't go to college, makes up a much larger share of the population in his view, or at least in his in his estimation, 50% of the population versus on the anywheres, only 25% of the population. But the somewheres are the folks that we would probably call the forgotten man. You know, the basically in America would be white working class probably, but I think uh, increasingly sort of Hispanics as well fall into this category. But, but the idea of living close to your family, staying uh, close to your community, you know, some 70 or 80% of the population, something like that, lives within 20 miles of uh, where they went to middle school versus the anywheres, probably basically the three of us, right? Or uh, you go to college and you kind of move away. And I think Kyle's moved back, but... Um, yeah, I live I live three miles from where I was born, but uh, I wasn't always here. <laughs> I did get out for a while. <laughs> right, but uh, but uh, I think, uh, you know, we t- our cohort tends to be fo- folks who are more like this. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're perfectly comfortable uh, moving to D.C. and having an apartment and sharing it with stranger roommates or something like that. And uh, he says this this makes up, in his estimation, a much smaller percentage, 20 to 25%. But this is the elites. This is the ruling class. And I felt, I really found this to be incredibly uh, enlightening, just the idea that, and, and we're, I think we're going to go through and, and, and develop like the ideas of what's the, what's the worldview of each of these. But anyway, I think it was a, it's, it was a good uh, way to describe the, the world. So how do you think it, it dictates our politics? Or how, I mean, how does that manifest itself in the world? It, I think it manifests itself in a profound mutual frustration. On the one hand, you have the anywheres, uh, especially even inclu- especially the anywheres who care, who all think that everybody should be like that, right? That everybody should. I mean, the the crudest version of this is everybody should learn to code, or but right. the, the nicer version is everybody should go to college. In other words, it's not that anywheres mean bad. I think this is, that this is a, a a mistake that some populist thinkers and art uh, authors. Okay. Most anywheres, I think, mean well, but they're basically saying that the only way to succeed is to become someone like me, someone who ideally gets as good a degree as possible, gets as high paying a, a job as possible. Uh, he talks about the family uh, where both parent, where both spouses work um, full time and have uh, childcare subsidized by the government. Uh, in other words, there, there is no path to success or fulfillment, or, or 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 realization, or identity, other than the professional upper middle class. So they want to help, but they can't conceive of the idea that maybe helping means allowing people to live differently, other than how they live. Uh, and on the other hand, you have the somewheres who, like I said, they are and remain very much a the majority of the voting, the adult and the voting population. Um, who their concerns about all sorts of things from immigration to trade deals to 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 uh, to all sorts of other issues like crime 
just don't get listened to because who are the people who go to DC? They have all gone to college. They have often all gone to high, high level universities. They all talk to each other. They probably rarely, if ever, interact, seriously interact with the working class people who do live in DC, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a world where there's just an enormous, to use the term, echo chamber, where the only pe the only concerns that get heard or discussed or debated on the left or the right are by people who are anywheres. And even if people talk in favor of the uh, somewheres, it's by people who either never really came from there or want to forget that they came from there because it's, you know, uh, not really, uh, not really refined. So there's an enormous frustration that absolutely nobody's listening to them. Um, again, I'm sure there are a lot of bad, there are definitely a lot of bad actors on, on, on both sides, but I tend to assume that both uh, are expressing a genuine frustration uh, with the current impasse. And that's something that uh, uh, Goodhart tries to get at in his book. I think that's the right way of looking at it. I, I don't think, uh, I've never been one for grand conspiracies. I think most people are trying to do the best. They just come at it from different ways. I mean, uh, Goodhart talks about a Jonathan Haidt's book, which we talked about on episode 42, about just how Sometimes people see things very differently, especially in the left-right divide. There's different axes of morality that are being conceived, and sometimes both people are, you know, you can, you can talk right past each other. But really interested me, and he does focus mostly on Britain in this book, although there's clear parallels here, is the um, kind of what you were talking about, the, the self-isolating, self-perpetuating elite. You know, the idea that even in a party that was once the working man's party, like the Labour Party of Britain, there is, I mean, he, he, he says that there are more, a higher percentage of the Labour members of Parliament are college graduates than the, than the Tories. And that, that kind of shocked me because I thought, you know, the Labour Party was at one time an, an avowedly Marxist party. And even after the sort of reforms of Tony Blair, they were still the ones represent, like unions had representation directly to the party. It wasn't it wasn't like the, our Democratic Party where they work hand in hand, but they're separate organizations. I, I think, as I, if I'm getting this right, I believe that the Labor Party was formed by labor unions. And you would expect that it would be more people who came up through those unions, through the old coal miners unions that used to be the heart of it and steel unions and various things like that. But I guess labor has kind of gotten to the same place that our Democratic Party has gotten, where it's they talk about the values of a working man, but really they are in their educational background and in their social circles, kind of indistinguishable from the, the country club Republicans that they still, you know, see themselves as a contrast to. And this is very much true. Um, and part of it from, again, from my studies of uh, what's been going on is that what we understand as the old labor alliance was basically in many countries, not just the states and Britain, was basically an alliance between the labor unions, the working men, and the manager, the growing managerial class, right? The people who ran the factories, the people who ran the firms, the, mm -hmm. the people who uh, occupied all the positions in the civil service. Um, and for a variety of reasons, um, the alliance came apart in the 80s and people went their separate ways. 
you can see it, for instance, in the 80s when, uh, quote unquote, Reagan Democrats started shifting to the right because they felt the left was going way too left. And in the meantime, the managerial class or the increasing uh, professional class started moving, increase, uh, started moving to the left, uh, which we see nowadays uh, in full blossom uh, under Obama and especially under Trump. Uh, with people uh, living in suburbs who used to vote more reliably Republican because they cared more about taxes and about crime, now they vote more left because they because uh, their values have changed substantially. While the their old allies are nevertheless, I wouldn't say that they become hardcore reactionary. Uh, you would you can see, for instance, uh, in Pew polls that uh, actually their views on immigration have softened under Trump, which is interesting, or they're really stayed the, stayed the same. But they nevertheless have not moved anywhere near as fast as the old managers. Um, mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's something you see all over the world, is that this old alliance that very much dominated mid-20th century politics just came apart. Another insight that Goodhart had, which I thought was very pers- uh, incisive, and which I think that people on the right need to think about very hard, because we tend to celebrate uh, the 1980s, the Reagan and Thatcher Revolution, as being this great success. We stop the welfare, the growth of the welfare state in its tracks. We make capitalism great again, if you will. Uh, we make uh, entrepreneurship great again. We make uh, the desire for freedom great again. But Goodhart says that what ended up happening is not quite the conservative revolution we'd like to think. What ended up happening was what he called a double liberalism. On the one hand, the right won the economic argument, more or less, which is why uh, you don't hear uh, people on the left talking about that and say nationalizing electrical uh, utilities anymore. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, the left won the culturally liberal argument, which is that, well, if you're arguing for personal freedom, then, you know, go all the way. Right. Mm-hmm. Then why should there be why should there be commitment to family? Why should there be commitment to you know, faith? Why should there be a commitment to a nation? Um, so the while we like to think that the releasing of energy with freedom uh, in the 80s was so great and there were lots of very important things that came with it. Um, it also may have it also may have perhaps gone a little bit too far, which you see, for instance, uh, one of the things I like to point out to my uh, uh, left, uh, left-wing followers is that what they don't un- seem to understand is that the sharp libertarian turn, or at least ostensible sharp libertarian turn under the Obama uh, administration on the right was actually what helped usher in many of the social liberation uh, developments that we see today, for instance, increased support for same-sex marriage, or increased support for marijuana. Um, and while I consider Obergefell, uh, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, settled. I don't think it, no one knows how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, nevertheless, um, something about the project of liberation, while understandable in, say, Reagan's or Thatcher's time about uh, making people freer to make their own choices as opposed to a domineering left and a domineering left-wing cultural elite. Um, we have basically ran, run this train too far. And that uh, while we talk about uh, freedom as great and liberating, uh, for a lot of people, it seems darn scary and even destabilizing, uh, mm-hmm. which is why, for instance, we talk about the benefits of free trade. And again, 
I'm actually a free trader. I think that free trade is great. I think it's benefited a lot of people, including people who think they've only been harmed by it. But it's an incredibly scary thing. And it comes incredibly fast. And it's one thing if you are someone with credentials or the ability to move around or immediately get jobs in various places, then that's great for you. If you're the kind of person who's done the same thing, who's done the same job for 20, 30 years, uh, or who lives in a world nowadays where unfortunately you need a college degree effectively to become a whatever job, almost every job in existence, that's a lot scarier to you. Uh, and that's something I don't think that people have really uh, understood too much. I think that's right. And that the point about the double liberalism, I think, is a great insight. And obviously, something Patrick Deneen and and others that we've discussed on the podcast. Uh, it seems to me that uh, that you're right, though, that this is the group that Goodhart is talking about. The divide here is more economic than cultural. I mean, he makes the he's very careful to to make the point, at least for for the British, some uh, somewheres. He says many of the left behinders, so that is the somewheres, accept much of the great liberalization in attitudes towards race, sexuality, and gender. So it's it's almost like they don't quite fit into into the either or groups because they come to grips with, let's say these uh, in America, what would be the social issues of gay marriage and abortion and so forth. Uh, it's not that those issues animate them. And frankly, I think a a good chunk of of Trump's coalition also falls within this. Goodhart makes the point that overall, these people are not necessarily religious. And that's what we found in 2016 afterwards, you know, in the research that quite a few of these folks that, that came out for Trump actually aren't that religious. I mean, they say they're Christian, but they don't actually go to church or anything. And it's not, it's not a, uh, a key sort of motivator in their lives. So anyway, it's, it's not so much the cultural issues that's animating them, but the economic, and I think you made a great point about free trade, something that I, you know, I'm a free trader too. Uh, but this is a conversation that Kyle and I have had ongoing and will continue to have. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? Uh, but this Goodhart, I think he really does key in on one particular issue that we've also talked about quite a bit. And I'd love to hear Avi, what you think about this, but, and that is immigration. He says, most somewheres are not bigots and xenophobes. They're just less enthusiastic about mass immigration and European integration. He quotes Eric Kaufman, uh, who we need to read one of his books. He's great. But Kaufman says, as large scale immigration challenges the demographic sway of white majorities, the gap between whites who embrace change and those who resist it is emerging as the key political cleavage across the West. And of course, uh, for the, for the anywheres, that is like these, uh, you know, orthodox liberalism, he says, any defense of tradition or community appears irrational or racist. And I think this is the predicament we find ourselves in here. I mean, I think that there are real reasons to be skeptical about immigration, but that's, that's played off as, oh, you're, you know, you're racist, you're a bigot, or, you know, you're, you're a, a religious zealot, something like that. But well, at least what Goodhart is arguing, I'd love to hear what you, what do you think, Avi, is that these folks are by and large, like, either they don't care or they've come to grips with a lot of these social issues that animate Americans, but they still see the world as, uh, as unfriendly. You have all these elites, the, the anywheres who are getting along very well and who are also very happy to open the door to increase competition with the somewheres uh, who, who don't have college educations, maybe who don't necessarily have an ability to pick up and move or a confidence to do that. 
And so it increases competition and this, and it becomes more of an, uh, an economic anxiety. I don't know what you think about that. Well, so there was a lot to impact on what you said. Let me uh, start with the focus on immigration. Look, resistance to immigration can be based on, um, can be based on bigotry. It can be based on just a natural human sense that, you know, I grew up in a particular neighborhood and all of a sudden all these people who I have no idea who they are are moving in and changing the character of the neighborhood and I don't know where I'm living anymore. Um, and one of the things they complain about, for instance, and uh, Goodhart discusses that, is that they really had no input in any of the discussions because all of the, both parties were basically dominated by anywheres who were more or less pro-immigration uh, because the elites were dominant, because uh, the elites and the people with the economic power, especially in London, uh, uh, made the, made these decisions without, say, putting it to a referendum or at the very least uh, ma- uh, making it uh, being op- being willing to openly discuss the debate. So, uh, as he points out, they're not necessarily anti-immigration, but they're not in favor of such incredibly rapid change. Like I mentioned with the free trade deals, like I can, ima- I can imagine a reality, maybe I'm delusional, but I can imagine a reality in which maybe if the trade deals were more graduated and allowed people more time to adjust, maybe people would be less angry and furious that all of a sudden everybody had swept the rug from under their feet. And that's the impression I get from, um, that's the impression I get from uh, this, uh, this case. When it comes to uh, immigration, also, I think that there's a very serious problem. And that's something I pointed out uh, again in my Twitter commentary. I said, look, immigration rises and falls on the question of identity. Uh, Crime, uh, jobs, those are important issues. But at the end of the day, that's the core question. And it's a legitimate question. It would be a legitimate question if all of a sudden, you know, Western countries started invading, you know, uh, East Asian countries, for whatever reason, uh, immigrating en masse. Um, it's, it's, it's an understandable issue. Um, and it is not helped to take an American question uh, when certain progressives and left-wing uh, ideologues talk about how we're going, to sw- we're going to not only bring in immigrants to the land of opportunity so that they can become full American citizens, but we're going to basically open the floodgates so we can crush the evil... Uh, white underclass who we so despise like a bug. That kind of Mm -hmm. rhetoric basically signals to, uh, you know, people who might be more accommodating to at least slower immigration, but still immigration, that this is a zero sum game, that either there is no immigration at all, or there is a flood of immigration, then then it's a war. Um, So it's not helped by uh, rhetoric by the, uh, by, uh, by certain, by certain anywheres. Um, And I also agree when it comes to economic competition, and that's another issue is that it's very easy to talk about painful, difficult trade-offs when you're not the one making the sacrifice. It's very easy to talk about, for instance, um, banning fracking when you're not the one who's going to be losing their livelihood, especially during a pandemic. Um, I mean, I remember seeing a poll that showed that very few Americans would be willing to spend more than 10 bucks a month in in order to... fight for climate change. That clearly shows that there's a very strong desire that people sacrifice for climate change as long as it's not me. Um, So that can also help compound the sense of resentment that it's one thing if we were all sacrificing together, you know, 
like during uh, World War One or World War Two or whatever it was, we're all chipping in together. It's another when the people who have all the power in the cloud are basically saying we all have to make sacrifices, but you're the ones who's you're the ones we're going to actually sacrifice. So that's uh, in response to the two issues you brought up. That was my understanding of Goodhart. Yeah, I think that that that's at the heart of populism is is seeing a hypocritical elite i think and on both those issues it it's true i mean when you talk about who whose job is threatened by mass immigration it's not it's not the guy on wall street it's not the guy in silicon valley likewise who 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 is you know those those guys aren't polluting in the way that the guy who works at a coal plant is but it, it's going to be his job and it's going to be his family who's have you know having to having to move, having to go on welfare, who knows what, when he's thrown out of his livelihood. And I, th- I think that that sort of resentment is not altogether unreasonable, and it, it should be expected, even if you think it's unreasonable. But that's sort of the, there's often this view on the managerial left of the, that there are no trade-offs, you know, that we can just, if something's right, we're going to do it. And if you say, well, what about these side effects? And it's like, what, don't you like doing right things? Come on, you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong side of history. But there are always trade-offs, and that because that is the human condition. And that's why I think that the one trade-off of the of the globalization switch that Goodhart talks about is that, you know, we were supposed to, if we were going to open our borders to trade and to free trade with the third world even, that there was going to have to be this mass retraining that there was going to have to be a way that we were going to take everybody who was once doing the jobs that are now going to be done in China or wherever, and we were going to get them into even better jobs, and we were all going to you know, live very happily thanks to the invisible hand. And it didn't happen. And it's not just that... I mean, I think a big part of it is that there's no... Some things can't be applied across the board. I mean, not not everyone can learn to code, and I th- I think you're right. I don't think that the people who said learn to code in the first place were saying it to denigrate anyone. They weren't saying it to insult them, like "Hey, get a better job, loser." It, I don't think it was like that. I think they really meant it, like "Hey, you can learn to do this too. It's easy. Everybody can code, but everybody can't code, and not everybody wants to code." And you know, the idea of you yanking the rug out of from under someone's feet after. 30 years at a certain job and saying, well, no problem. Just go back to school. I know you're 50 years old. Just, you know, take some classes. We'll even subsidize it. It'll be fine. Yeah. It was, it was sort of a, a, uh, they failed on that end of the bargain. And then that's it. It's like, you don't, you bring it up. Nobody wants to talk about it. And I, I think that it's, it's unavoidable that that sort of failure of, that the vision was failed to begin with, but the fact that it didn't come out, there's no way that's not going to lead to populist resentment. And it's unsurprising that we're seeing this, I think, in Britain and America. And you see it in France with the uh, Yellow Vest guys. You see it in, in uh, Poland, in, in Germany. It's, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one other way in which you see, in some respects, uh, populist resentment um, is the and it's going on in many European countries. I don't know if, how much it's going to happen in, uh, in America if, uh, God forbid, uh, this pandemic continues to get worse. But the the issue of lockdowns, I don't think people understand just how much it's a much bigger dilemma for people who cannot afford or do not have the option to work from home, especially mm-hmm. people who work uh, in the services, uh, people who work outside. 
people who have people who uh, have built businesses their entire life and uh, in many cases have to shut down just to, just as much as if they were destroying riots doesn't mean that they don't understand the health risks. That's what people don't understand. Yes, there are a bunch of loud yahoos who, you know, they, they think COVID's a myth or whatever, but a lot of people I think do understand the health risks, but feel, but I think feel, also feel that no one really, or at least the people who make the decisions, right, then uh, aren't really sufficiently considerate of the fact that, like you said, there are trade-offs and economic trade-offs have health trade-offs too, by the way. I mean, if you don't have any money and you don't have any health insurance and you're constantly suffering from social and psychological isolation, okay, you didn't get COVID, but you're not in good shape. And that's the mm. case for a lot. That was the case for a lot of people uh, this year. And I don't know if that's going to happen again. And I, I, I really think that uh, Trump may have, you know, I don't like the guy, but he may have been very crude about it, saying that Joe Biden is Mr. Shutdown. But I think that he has a point in that there's there we, we need to discuss trade-offs in a much more realistic, balanced manner than, oh my goodness, all that matters is health and how dare you want to kill grandma. I, I, I just say three cheers to that. <laughs> 100% agree. So uh, Goodhart also has this really interesting, it's not long, but he does have a discussion of the extremes. So on the one side, he would say, the global vill villagers, that's, that would be the, the far end of the other side of the, the anywheres. He says, Teresa May described them of, as citizens of nowhere, secular, mobile, often highly successful, and likely belong to international networks found at the top end of business, professions, creative people, and academia, have disproportionate influence on public opinion, and especially on the anywheres, advocate essentially open borders and accuse those who object of racism. And to me, that's just this just jumped out. I mean, I I think we have a sense of who these are. Basically, the New York Times editorial board, you know, all these jet setters who are constantly uh, talking heads, you know, whoever who's a foreign correspondent from from who knows where. Uh, of course, a lot of you know big shots in big in business. I I think he says it's five percent of the population. It could even be less than that. But these folks do have an absolutely outsized influence because i think this is the this is the caricature that uh conservatives would have of the left right uh these folks who who are who are jet setters who don't care about other people who are just completely uh, detached you know uh want open borders want to give uh free health care to illegal immigrants free trade and with no uh, guardrails uh, before I ask you to comment on that, then he has the the other extreme, which is he calls hard authoritarians. He says that's another 5% of the population. But these are the folks who, some of the yahoos that you were just talking about, and folks who maybe they're the the militia types, you know, who, who tried to kidnap the governor of Michigan. You know, these these are the folks who are the absolute caricature of the left-wing media and of, and, and of Democrats, the white nationalists, you know, I've been a conservative and a Republican for a very long time. I don't know a single white nationalist. I don't know a single, uh, skinhead. I don't, I haven't even heard of anyone who knows any one of them. So like, I assume they exist. Obviously they do because they're on TV now and again, but this is not a large, a, a huge portion of the population, but it is the caricature that the left has of the right. So we have our caricatures here, the global villagers, the hard authoritarians who are, who are, who are the racists, who are the Charlottesville, 
marchers who, who are, you know, want to preserve the statues and so forth. But I believe that these two groups, particularly in the era of social media, where the algorithm is going to, you know, our Twitter feeds are going to take us directly to these groups. And of course, I'm overwhelmed with, you know, the global, <laughs> the, the anarchist, the Antifa on my, on my Twitter feed, which tells you, I guess, uh, more about my own uh, psychology. But anyway, I don't know if you have uh, any thoughts on this or, or how, how these extremes, you know, where do they fit into the world? And also what kind of influence do you think that they have on, on the actual uh, political landscape? So uh, I'm going to, I guess, say something, I guess, mildly controversial. I think once upon a time, the white nationalists of the world were once a lot more influential. Um, you know, the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s or even the 1960s, mm-hmm. uh, the, the white, white supremacy used to be much more uh, commonplace than it, than it is now. And Goodhart points to that in, in the case of Britain, but it's also true in many other places. Um, I think that the what you talk about the elites uh, having much more power, uh, however, is true. And but uh, but you are absolutely correct in my opinion to say that it is an exaggeration to say that every Democrat or everyone who's on the left hates you know hates location hates America right, hates right. Uh, hates hates workers. It's just not correct. Um, but the thing is, is that the, these people really do have an enormous amount of influence. And the question is, how do we reduce or attune or balance that influence in such a way that we don't punish success, right? We still want rich people around. We still want smart people writing good books. Uh, we still want the people who are gifted artistically to make full use of their talents. Uh, but we don't want them curb stomping everybody else. Um, so once, so one suggestion he had, uh, which I'm very favorable to and which, you know, people on the right tend to be very supportive of is genuine local control. In other words, one of the Mm -hmm. big good arguments for more local control in America, in Britain and elsewhere, is that it means less control from DC or whatever global capital you want uh, by people who uh, you know, may have, may or may not have people's best interests at heart, but who clearly don't understand them and their needs. Uh, this would increase political engagement because people would, instead of voting to compete with, you know, how many voters uh, have been tallied so far? 140 million, let's say, because 150 million. Instead of trying to compete with 100, instead of your vote trying to compete with 150 million other American citizens, you will work on how to improve your local. Uh, neighborhood or your local city or your local town uh, where fewer and fewer issues become heated debates where everything is going to be at a standstill because you know America and many other countries are just way too diverse to have a curb stomping uh, so that's one suggestion he has another suggestion uh, which uh, which he has is to um, nowadays the government uh, massively subsidizes pretty exclusively college. And maybe there should be a much more serious look at like German models where uh, people are offered apprenticeships uh, or where people go to trade schools. And even more importantly than that, even more importantly than that, uh, I wrote an article uh, in The Bulwark a few years ago where I said, look, we talk about blue collar work 
right? And we think the old factories, we think the mines, we think uh, construction, and those are all those all exist. But the truth is, is that an enormous number uh, amount of what we call blue collar work is uh, in the services, the people who make sure we have food, including during a pandemic, uh, the mm-hmm. people who deliver our Amazon uh, goods, uh, all sorts of people like that. And those are worth paying attention to. And not just in terms of policy. That was that was another thing I thought that uh, he put too much of an emphasis on is that Goodhart is very, very good at policy. He looks at tax incentives and so forth. That's great. Hmm. But as I thought about it, I said, look, it's not just about money. People don't just want money. That's a big mistake of people who see everything as economics. Mm-hmm. You can make a little bit amount of money and have a lot of self-respect and you can make a lot of money and feel like you're treated like dirt. And let me give you two examples. One example is uh, the starving artist or the starving columnist who nevertheless knows the right friends, uh, can get a column every so often in the New Yorker or whatever. That person has a lot of self-respect, even if they you know, have trouble making rent. On the other hand, you could have someone who's very successful. At, I don't know, someone gave me an example of uh, running a business that uh, drains septic tanks, right? It's mm-hmm. an honorable job. You yeah. provide a service that's necessary. You probably make a lot of money. But let's face it, in, 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 in our world of where, every, where everything is culturally determined by people who are college educated, um, that person's not going to get a lot of respect. So I said that it's not just enough to talk about policy, as important as policy is. We need to reimagine and recreate a culture where people, it's great to have people move up, but we need to have a world in which people who, for whatever reason, uh, want to stay where they are or people who can't move up or people who move up and not in the way that we approve, uh, they nevertheless have a place, right? That's also Mm -hmm. a somewhere, not just a physical location, but a place in society. Uh, So we need to think uh, very hard about how to do that if that's possible at all. All right, good stuff. We've actually run into some technical difficulties, so we're probably gonna end it right here. I want to thank Avi Wolf for joining us. He's been a great guest and uh, a loyal listener. And so we really appreciate that. That's Goodheart. Catch us next time.